This podcast contains instances and details of abuse, death, genocide, and trauma. Please take care of yourself and one another. This is the Boarding School Oral History Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Belofko. Today, I am joined by Dr. Sasha Maria Suarez, a White Earth Ojibwe descendant who currently teaches at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Dr. Suarez, thank you so much for joining me today in today's episode. Um, How are you? I am doing good. It feels like spring in Wisconsin, finally. So That's, That's good to hear. It's the same Kansas, so... Um, first of all, for, for our audience, can you tell us about what your current position is at the University of Wisconsin? Yes, yeah, so I am an assistant professor in the Department of History and the Program of American Indian Studies. Um, I joined in the fall of 2020, so very much the kind of COVID years. Um, but my work is predominantly kind of bridging the history department to AIS and trying to strengthen the relationship that the department has to native histories on campus through, of course, teaching classes, undergraduate classes and working with graduate students, but also expanding um, to think about the ways that native peoples are talked about both on campus and then in the state and also, you know, kind of nationally. Mm -hmm. Great. Um, And what subjects do you teach there mostly? So I generally teach some really core kind of survey classes, intro to Native American history. Um, I also have taught the intro to American Indian studies class, but what I tend to specialize in are things related to um, Native women and in particular uh, Native women historically in the Midwest, as well as social movements in the 20th century. Um, So I've taught classes on American Indians and cities. I've taught classes on Native activism, um, Indigenous women specifically. So those are those are kind of my my specialized courses that I offer. Great. And I know you worked with uh, my current advisor and your former advisor, Dr. Kent Blancett on Indian cities, um, that book that was just published, I believe. And where did you complete your undergraduate and graduate degrees? I completed my undergraduate degree at the University of Minnesota Morris, uh, where I got a BA in American Indian Studies and a history minor. And then I completed my PhD at the University of Minnesota Twin Cities in the American Studies Department. Great. Okay, so you mentioned um, the University of Minnesota Morris. Um, Can you describe the history of the Morris Industrial School before it was the university? Can you describe that history? Yeah, and I can certainly, you know, some of the basics. There are definitely, there's a lot going on um, right now to kind of think through, work through this history in particular. But the Morris Indian Industrial School was founded in about 1887 by the Catholic Sisters of Mercy And for the first 10 years, they operated under a government contract. Um, A lot of the students who would have been sent to Morris were, because it is very close to the South Dakota border, um, there were students from Sisseton Wapaton, there were students from White Earth, there were students from places like Leech Lake, um, and also places like Turtle Mountain in North Dakota. Um, In 1897, the federal government took over the full operation of the boarding school, and they continued to operate it until about 1909, when 
the school was closed and the federal government transferred the grounds and the buildings to the state of Minnesota. Um, and so from that point on, it operated through the state of Minnesota, but not as an Indian boarding school. It actually kind of shifted to um, non-Native education, uh, particularly with the kind of long tenure of an agricultural high school, West Central School of Agriculture, um, which opened the following year in 1910. And then in 1960, I believe, uh, the University of Minnesota Morris opened on on the grounds, which is what it has been ever since. Mm -hmm. Okay. And what were the conditions like at the Morris Industrial School? What, what experiences do you know of that the students um, went through? Well, I can't speak specifically to Morris as, as a student who attended um, Morris, which it has a very large native student population. Um, at the time I was there, I think it was 13, 14% of the native student or the student body was native students. Um, and it's only gone up because part of this whole process of transferring from the kind of Catholic operation to the federal, to the state, uh, involved the implementation of a tuition waiver so that native students had education or access to education. Um, as a student there, this was not anything that was readily talked about. And I was there from about 2011 to 2013. Um, in general, it was mentioned that there was a boarding school nobody really talked about what it was like for Native students uh, to attend. But there were stories that I heard from people saying like, there was evidence of people trying to run away, um, which is very common for boarding schools across the country, um, which, you know, at the very least indicates that for many Native students, this wasn't a positive experience, um, even if perhaps some of the hallmarks of very violent boarding school experiences are not as readily present in the histories around Morris at this time. Um, we do also know that there were some students that died on campus, um, which there's been a lot of research around that very, very contemporarily, thinking through, you know, this particular history that in my experience, having attended UMM was not talked about at all by anybody outside of Native studies. Right. And we do we see, um, as an alum, do you see this narrative changing? Do you see a discussion starting um, with the release of the um, federal investigative report from Deb Holland and uh, Brian Newland? Do you, do you see the narrative changing? Yes. Um, I think at Morris, the changes have been initiated well before the uh, National Boarding School Coalition and the report. Um, I know in 2018 or so, there was a lot of research that was being done by a student in collaboration with one of the faculty members there, looking at student deaths on campus. Um, I think in particular, you know, the really horrific, though um, not unexpected discovery of native children in residential schools north of the medicine line 
really allowed Native students at Morris to push because for for a very long time, I think most of this conversation was being had among Native students, including at my time at Morris, um, where, you know, for instance, it was pretty well assumed that there were there were there was a cemetery somewhere, but nobody knew where it was. And generally, I think at the time, administration was like, no, that's not not really a thing, but it's pretty clear that that there are children who were buried on campus um, at this particular point, which I think the movement towards addressing this has certainly been helped by kind of getting this national support. I know the University of Minnesota Morse has worked very actively with the coalition, um, but also native students on campus have been really, really active in trying to push for there to be more conversations around what this means. Um, you know, particularly in 2021, after the first children were found at Lake Camlands, for instance, um, Morris students were very active and vocal, both, you know, internally and also externally with what they felt was a failure on the part of administration to address these really traumatic histories. Um, and through, I think, a lot of their efforts, they have been able to shape a conversation that is trying to address the fact that this public university that is very well known in the Midwest is in fact on the grounds of an Indian boarding school. Um, I haven't been out there in a few years, but even last time I went, there was a noticeable difference in students like acknowledging that there was, in fact, a boarding school. When I graduated in 2013, the only people who really acknowledged that it was a boarding school were Native students and faculty who worked with Native students and staff. Um, but I think that there is a shift happening where, in large part due to due to students, but certainly also, of course, faculty members like Kevin Whalen and Becca Gherkin, um, that there's a lot of momentum happening around trying to really make sure that community-led research is being done on this issue and that Native people who are entering into this space feel like it's a space where they can actively talk about these truths and to heal from legacies of boarding schools like Morris. Um, I definitely think that this will be an ongoing conversation. I know very recently Morris, um, in collaboration with my colleague here at the University of Wisconsin, um, Matt Villeneuve, and in relation to uh, the Nibi Center, which is a nonprofit white earth uh, reservation, nonprofit, um, that works specifically on healing historical trauma. They got a Humanities Without Walls grant specifically to look at questions of white earth history, for instance, at Morris. Um, and also, I do believe part of that is also addressing, you know, how, how to begin a process wherein if people are actively able to find where children have been buried, they can be repatriated home. Mm -hmm. um, so I definitely, it, I've seen a shift, especially in the last couple of years, sure. um, but I think it's ongoing and I think it's really led 
a lot by the native the native people who are part of the Morris community, um, really not letting it go and mm -hmm. pushing pushing for this to be a continuous conversation. Mm -hmm. It's a very important conversation for sure. Um, and even in Lawrence, we of course have the Haskell uh, Indian Nations University. And not many people at the University of Kansas know that there was a boarding school in Lawrence um, before it became the university that it is now. So these are important conversations that are occurring all over the country and they're they're essential for um, indigenous sovereignty as a whole. So can you talk about the lead up in the Minnesota state and territory to the establishment of the Morris Industrial School itself. I know I've heard the history of the Dakota 38, the Dakota Wars. Um, these are really tough topics, but can you talk about the lead up? Yeah. Um, so the kind of settler colonial history of Minnesota um, is one that. is very, very violent in a lot of ways, particularly, and as somebody who's not Dakota, um, who, but I, my work is centered in Minneapolis, which is Dakota homelands. Um, it's something that is absolutely necessary to discussing, you know, the history of the state. It's very much tied to these other policies like boarding schools. Um, and, you know, in some ways what happens in Minnesota is, part of a very familiar pattern of session treaties and forced removals to smaller and smaller reservations um, that are, of course, usually on the least desirable, less likely to support you pieces of land um, in favor of white settlement on the best land. But in Minnesota, we also see a lot of very clear cut corruption and a lot of effort on the part of, in particular, um, people who are making money off of Native people, using that as a way to further make Native people in debt to them, which leads to, you know, a lot of desperation on people who are just trying to stay alive in situations where their lives have changed very drastically. Um, in particular for the U.S. Dakota War, you know, there were, of course, a number of treaties. As an Ojibwe person, I do have to acknowledge that some of those treaties, um, in particular, the Treaties of Prairie du Chien, which the first one set like the boundary lines for tribal nations, not just in Minnesota, also in like Wisconsin, Iowa, and Illinois. Um, but some of those were very much in favor of Ojibwe standards of where our like territorial lines would be. Um, which of course reduced Dakota lands and Dakota ability to claim their belonging and their sovereignty over these spaces. Um, for the Dakota people in what is today the state of Minnesota, the treaties that followed were very wholesale and eventually led in the 1850s to treaties basically ceding all the lands in Southern Minnesota. Um, and then they were forced to move to Upper and Lower Sioux Agency, which um, you know, are not too terribly far 
actually from where Morris is. And these were very small reservations that then through later treaties and agreements were stripped back even further. Um, and on top of this, there was a cycle of debt that was being implemented by traders who were waiting for annuities to come in. They would take the annuities um, because basically they said, we gave you all this stuff on credit and now that credit is due. So Dakota people couldn't necessarily get ahead. Um, and when annuities showed up late, which was not necessarily there's some conversation, and I think most Dakota people that I've heard from talk about this say that it wasn't coincidental because there were a lot of politicians and business people in the Twin Cities who were making money off of Dakota annuities as well. Um, so when annuities failed to arrive and Dakota people were starving in the summer of 1862, some within, and these are, of course, it's important to note, you know, there are four clearly distinct Dakota um, kind of nations that make up part of the Ocheti Shakoin, which is of course connected to Lakota people and Nakota people. Um, so it, there's not necessarily a consensus even among Dakota people because they were all autonomous before the federal government treated them as the same. Right. Um, and some Dakota people felt that the only solution, particularly because the US had failed to uphold their end of treaty agreements which included the delivery of annuities that particularly given the situation going to war with the US was the one of the few answers and solutions available. Um, you know, the history of the US Dakota war, of course, it it's mostly talked about in relation to the aftermath, which is of course the arresting of hundreds of Dakota men who are put on trial in really sham trials. They're tried in bunches, some in under five minutes. Um, 300 men or so are found guilty and are sentenced to death. Meanwhile, Dakota people who were living at the agencies, particularly women, elders, and children, were forcibly marched to Fort Snelling, which is you know located in one of the most important Dakota sacred sites um, where they were basically incarcerated for, for the winter of 1862. Um, in the end, 38 Dakota men were, were hung the day after Christmas in 1862 and two more Dakota leaders who had fled, um, had managed to escape arrest were later captured and also um, hanged at Fort Snelling and Dakota people in 1863 who were at Fort Snelling were forcibly removed from the state of Minnesota um, in large part because of the sentiment around native peoples in the state following the war. Alexander Ramsey, you know, our first governor, our territorial governor prior to that had made very clear statements about Dakota people and how they needed to be driven from the borders of the state forever or else exterminated. Um, and this really sets the stage, I think, for how at least Dakota people understand their histories with places like 
Minnesota, which is their homeland, the name of the state itself comes from Dakota. Um, and also really impacts succeeding policies of assimilation, particularly, you know, boarding school education. As I said, Dakota students would have, to some extent, also perhaps been sent to Morris um, as a boarding school, given its, its proximity. Though, of course, Flandreau and South Dakota also, um, and Pipestone, which is also not incredibly far from Morris, at least by car, obviously. These would have been longer distances um, prior, but that kind of history has, of course, a very long-lasting intergenerational effect on Dakota people. For Ojibwe people, um, you know, our histories with the federal government are much different. Um, speaking as somebody who, you know, is second generation urban Ojibwe, I grew up in Minneapolis because my grandfather left White Earth um, in the 50s. Our history was one of the federal government trying to create this reservation where they were basically going to force all Ojibwe people, except for those from Red Lake, to live. Um, this was an attempt to open up land, and it was also thought to be an attempt to like promote assimilation. Um, it didn't really work. Uh, mm -hmm. And through things like allotment, which you know are starting at the same time that Morris opens, there's so much dispossession taking place that at least four families at White Earth, you know, some their choices were so limited that they did send some of their children to boarding schools because they just weren't able to support their children uh, because they didn't have access to lands. Their lands were being taken in many cases illegally um, and their access to, you know, traditional seasonal rounds, the ability to harvest traditional foods was not erased, but it was certainly complicated by the sudden kind of proliferation of um, white titled landowners on the reservation. Um, I think in both the case of the U.S. Dakota War and in at least what happens at White Earth and other Ojibwe reservations around land dispossession, it really sets up this idea that for the general American public, Native people, one of the best ways to, quote, save or help Native people was through assimilation, um, which is definitely prevailing rhetoric at the end of the 1800s. And it, in Minnesota, has some pretty severe consequences. Um, but at the same time, I think it's also important to highlight that in a lot of ways, you know, Native children found ways to resist and native parents and family members found ways to try to resist and certainly to use institutions that were inherently designed to be culturally disruptive and, you know, to be very blunt with my words, uh, agents of cultural genocide. Um, they found ways to utilize these institutions to the best of their benefits in, in many instances, um, which is also part of the history, the balancing act of talking about such violent, painful histories, but also indigenous survival and continuity, even in the face of you, these really difficult experiences that have been 
proven to have lasting impact on future generations. Sure. Yeah. Um, could you speak more to the experiences of white, white earth or OGBA children, any stories that you've been told? Um, and as well as maybe you can mention more um, examples of agency in these schools. Um, how were students able to survive? Um, what did they do um, at these institutions? Yeah, for, you know, for white earth children um, who, you know, would have been sent to any number of boarding schools in the state. There were a number of white earth students that went out of state to like Flandreau, but also Pipestone, Morris. Um, there was St. Benedict's mission on the white earth reservation. There are stories of white earth children being sent to a boarding school at Red Lake. Um, and I think in some of the instances that I have seen um, and I've heard about, there's often a centering of running away as agency. And there were certainly other ways, kind of more subversive ways to, to resist the structure of boarding schools. Um, but a lot of the stories that I have come across generally involve Native students who are either, you know, writing home, their parents are writing home, or writing to the schools specifically to talk about things like, my child is ill, send them home, um, or children running away and trying to make it back to White Earth, which I think it says something so clearly that despite this act of running away, which would certainly, you know, it, outside of being dangerous for children to do over many, many miles, would also have resulted in punishment. Um, but I think, you know, that particular act highlights for children at White Earth and other children as well, the determination to remove oneself from a situation that is violent, that is not aligned with who you are or where you wanna be. And it also highlights how important home and family are for, for Native children. And that despite these schools trying to sever those ties and you know, in some instances, they, they were perhaps more successful in trying to sever these ties, but in many instances, they failed in a lot of ways to actually do that. Um, I was recently kind of perusing um, Brenda Child's Boarding School Seasons, which is an older book, um, but I like it so much because it highlights, and there are many examples in that book of white earth children um, alongside other Ojibwe children in the state of Minnesota who were actively moving through these spaces. And she does such a good job of highlighting their agency and the agency that their families had over their own lives, which was something these boarding schools were really seeking to dismantle. Um, and it's something that I feel like is really important to highlight um, in my own family. There is very little conversation about what Indian education for my grandparents looked like. Um, I have heard 
that my grandfather went to boarding school. Um, he, you know, grew up in White Earth, um, in Monoman. He was raised by his grandmother and he grew up with his aunts and uncles. Um, there were seven, eight of them plus him. And she was running the house by herself. Um, and so I have been told that he did attend boarding schools but my family does not really provide much information and for me it's a very difficult thing to think through in relation Mm -hmm. to the possibility that he didn't want to discuss any of this Um, and despite all of that you know he survived he married my grandmother they moved to the cities um i am the legacy of their surviving and those kinds of things i think are so important to to acknowledge in these instances of great historic and intergenerational trauma because it also factors in those of us who are the descendants of people who experienced this to highlight the incredible strength and determination of indigenous peoples, um, which we can see in the historical records and we can see it happening, you know, at Morris with these native students who are actively pushing the administration and the University of Minnesota system to acknowledge that this history is important and their failure to acknowledge it could implicate them in a continuing process of indigenous erasure. Um, I feel like I maybe got a little bit off track there. <laughs> no, no, that's great. Um, thank you for sharing that. That that was that was fantastic. Um, it t- I'm sure it takes a lot um, to share to share that information. Um, but survivance is so so important. Um, even in my first year in my MA program, it, it is evident that survivance um, from the boarding school era is still here with descendants like yourself. So, um, and we see this opposition um, towards uh, teaching this kind of history um, on the rise, Um, you know, this opposition to CRT and everything like that. Um, But, but from this discussion alone, it's evident that this history is important. for ancestors, for for current generations to hear. Um, so thank you for sharing that. That that was really insightful. Um, I'm wondering if you can talk to talk about um, what the United States government and the public should be doing to appropriately appropriately reckon with this history. Um, uh, these actions of genocide at um, American Indian boarding schools. What what should we be doing as scholars, as as just members of the public? That's a really good question, um, and I think particularly under Deb Holland, you know, there has been more movement on this that tribal nations have been calling for for a very long time. Um, I think in terms of the United States government and its acknowledgement and what, how, how it does literally anything Mm -hmm. to address this is that the government has to acknowledge that words 
aren't the end. Um, you know, Obama issued an apology to Native peoples um, for the kind of overall treatment of Native Americans in the United States in like 2009, I believe. Mm -hmm. um, and like, that's great, but we're how many years after that? And it still feels like Native peoples are marginalized, ignored, argued with over what should be done, particularly in relation to things that many Native scholars have literally pointed to as aligning with the UN's definitions of genocide, um, which includes the removal of children, uh, which was done whole scale in this country. And I think for the government to actually appropriately deal with these past actions, they need to actually step up in some way in terms of financial resources, in terms of you know, inviting Native people to actually have a seat at the table and not just a seat, but a directing seat in these conversations because the history of the United States and its relationship with Native people has been one of the United States making decisions for Native people in a very paternalistic way, despite Native nations and their citizens saying, we are our own people, like, we can do this. Um, I think it really requires also a major shift to occur for the general public to acknowledge that, you know, much of what you think about Native peoples is oversimplified or just wrong. Mm -hmm. um, and that because you talked about the current situation in this country around teaching these these kinds of histories, it's important to acknowledge that learning them isn't doing anything to you personally, because mm -hmm. we are talking about histories where people teaching you or your peers may literally be dealing with the repercussions of these decisions. Mm -hmm. This isn't just something that's easily erased. It has clear ongoing consequences for native people. Um, I recently, in my intro to native history class, we were, we did a, a section on boarding schools, which is always a little nerve wracking um, because the University of Wisconsin-Madison, there are a much smaller proportion of native students. Um, and sometimes this kind of conversation can make non-native students feel uncomfortable. Um, and sometimes part of that is they make tongue-in-cheek remarks, which is deeply traumatizing for Native students to be in classrooms. And I have to express every time I teach on boarding schools that this is something that needs to be taken with complete seriousness. Um, and that discomfort is fine, it's expected, but that doesn't change the fact that you could be talking about something that your classmate next to you, their grandparents went through. Um, that there are people alive today who went to these institutions and have horrific stories about what happened to them. And that you need to 
enter into these conversations in a way that doesn't center yourself. Because talking about these histories is not, is not really just a situation of you're here to get this grade, for instance, in a class. But for the general public, this isn't an instance of just saying, yep, I know this now. It's about how much non-Native people try to center themselves in these conversations. Because sometimes the best thing you can do is to sit back and listen. And Native people will tell you what they want you to do. Um, to support them. And I think the support part is important because oftentimes these issues, and in particular thinking more broadly about things like the land back movement, it's this assumption that Native people are just going to take things. Um, and I think in some ways, Native peoples are due things. I think we are due land back. At White Earth, we lost 80% of our land by 1909. That's a lot of reservation land to lose. Um, and I feel like it shouldn't just be on Native nations to have to buy back lands that were illegally taken, for instance. But framing it as Native people taking, taking, taking allows for this idea that by addressing these histories, non-Native people have to give something up. Mm -hmm. When instead, what I try to explain to students and you know, many conversations I've had with peers and colleagues and friends and family uh, is that this isn't just an issue of taking. This is an issue of non-Native people learning how to actually support Native people instead of talking for us and talking over us. Um, and so, you know, there are many different ways that the government and the public can address these very real histories that have ongoing impacts. But part of it is really, I, I don't think it's that complicated. I think it's letting Native people speak, mm -hmm. letting Native people go through a process of truth-telling and healing that can be done publicly and knowing that by listening to this, you are understanding in some part that this is not a conversation that requires the centering of non-Native people. Right. Um, it requires Native peoples having, you know, self-determinative ability to tell non-Native people, this is what you can do after you learn about this, if that makes sense. Exactly. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Indigenous voice is so, so important to narrating this past. And you mentioned just as a non-Indigenous person myself, just sitting back and listening, that is what's key, I think, to these sort of um, discussions. So um, I also have learned about the Truth and Reconciliation Committee um, or coalition, I'm not sure what the C stands for, um, but that that worked in Canada um, to kind of reckon with this past, to their past of the um, reserves and then the residential schools up there. Um, would something like that work in the United States? Is that what we should also implement? You know, I think Truth um, and Reconciliation, north of the Medicine Line and in what is now Canada, like the the residential school process because they've also had one for like MMIW mm -hmm. um, 
is a step in the right direction. I think a lot of First Nations people have pointed out, like, we allowed our elders to engage in this. They, in some cases, re-traumatized themselves so that they could feel like they were heard. And you all acknowledged it, but then it felt like after this process was done formally, there were no plans on what to do next. Um, I think that the US, generally speaking, has taken some leads from what has happened in Canada, both with residential schools, but also MMIW. Um, and so I think it is something to consider in the United States. I also think that part of this is thinking about what Native nations want for healing purposes beyond sharing the stories. Uh, you know, the ability to carry on Indigenous languages, which were actively kind of attacked in boarding schools. Um, the ability to perform ceremonies in sacred sites, which was not something that boarding schools would have appreciated or tolerated. The ability to perform, you know, longstanding land-based practices, which requires us to think about the fact that pipelines might pollute waterways that are necessary for ceremonies. These kinds of, they're all very interrelated. Um, and I think, you know, a truth and reconciliation kind of process starts that. But I think too often it's used kind of like land acknowledgements as a like self-congratulatory, we did this. Um, in terms of just keeping it with, you know, education, Native peoples have for decades worked very hard to reclaim what Indian education looks like for Native youth, um, to take it from this very violent idea and to transform the possibility of children's futures. Um, so I think it is something the U.S. could do. And I think it's it's one of the starting points that leads more towards, you know, listening. Um, but out of that, what people tell you to do, following up on that, is, I think, the important part that we often see many governments fail to initiate. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think it, it's the, the pressure that this isn't the last step necessary. Right. Right. It is part of a process, um, an ongoing process to make sure that um, Indigenous peoples are represented um, and that their voices are heard, um, for sure. So uh, my last prepared question for you um, deals with the future of American Indian education. Um, can you um, speak to that as well as how does the memory of the boarding schools um, and their legacy, I guess, lead to empowerment for current generations? So I think that um, to think through the future of American Indian education, because we live in a settler colonial nation state, mm -hmm. it's important to look at this from a couple different ways. For instance, the kind of self-determinative practices implemented at 
you know, reservation schools, uh, tribal colleges and universities. These kinds of things have proven to have a profound impact on Native youth who generally are either reduced to insignificant statistical outliers or are generally treated in a way that criminalizes them or treats them as if they are going to be failures um, by non-Native educators predominantly. The transition from boarding school education that sought to criminalize and, you know, position Indigenous identities as wrong as something that shouldn't exist anymore, transformed over time into a situation wherein Native children, particularly those who grow up on reservations, but also Native children in cities, encounter educators who treat them as lesser human beings, who are not worth the effort, which is highly racialized and very much embedded in colonial practices that seek to if they can't utilize Native children to throw them away, essentially. Um, and the educational practices of Native educators, particularly, you know, in, in immersion schools, for instance, uh, it's proven to have a profound impact on Native students' confidence in themselves, on, on how they feel about their nations, about how they feel about their own futures, and the future of their entire community, these kinds of things are important because many Native peoples grow up feeling like education as a formal kind of institutional experience is not one that accounts for them. And so I think we can see the future of American Indian education already occurring through the work of Native educators in spaces where they have the ability to promote culturally informed education. Um, of course, not all native students go to reservation schools, which in many cases are far from perfect, greatly underfunded, um, and it does not remove the possibility of non-native educators who are inherently racist. Um, but many Native students, including myself, I did not go to schools that were predominantly Native in the city of Minneapolis. I was often, at least until high school, one of maybe two Native people in a classroom. Um, and for Native children who are in those experiences, I think it's really important that educators do the work themselves to, to learn how to have these conversations about Indigenous peoples in a way that doesn't just victimize Native people, um, but also highlights the fact that Native people exist um, and that it's not, first of all, appropriate for anybody to ask Native students in their classes to speak for all Native people, uh, which I think is a pretty common experience for a lot of us who have spent time in classrooms that are predominantly non-Native. The kind of work that I'm trying to do at the University of Wisconsin as an educator um, who does get a pretty good number of our Native students in my classes um, 
is to ensure that their education is one that upholds their community connections, their kind of internal sovereignty as it relates to their tribal nation sovereignty, that they get to have some say in what their education looks like and that they get to feel heard, um, whether, you know, widely if they're comfortable or internally with me, um, privately talking about things that they aren't comfortable sharing in large classes. Making space for Native students shouldn't be so difficult, especially when talking about Native-specific issues. Um, and I think, you know, for many of us who have trained in Native studies, our kind of methodological practices in our research really translate into pedagogical approaches in classrooms. Um, which, not to speak for my students, but generally I think gives them the opportunity to feel like they can explore who they are as Native youth, young adults, who are trying to come to terms with violent legacies of colonization, but also want to highlight what they want to see in the future. Um, and so I think it's really kind of, I could get into way too much about the pedagogical approaches here, um, but I think, you know, in places, for instance, predominantly white institutions, um, in higher education, for instance, um, raising the level of awareness and also um, the appropriate approaches to conversations that Indigenous students may feel excludes them from the classroom needs to be done at every level of an educational institution. Um, I think that it requires people who don't even teach in Native studies to acknowledge their own biases about Native peoples. Um, and how they talk about Native peoples and to acknowledge that they may not know they have Native students in their classes. Um, and that being aware of how you teach Native children and Native young adults is incredibly important because they are dealing with legacies of educational discrimination and bias and violence. And that the best way to support them is to make sure that they don't have to educate you when they're there for their education. In terms of, you know, the empowerment of current generations, I, I think very strongly about, for instance, the native students at Morris um, who, you know, either inside or outside of their native student group, the circle of, um, what is their full? It's CNIA. And I'm blanking on the acronym, even though I was a part of this group. Uh, CNIA. We'll mm -hmm. go with that. Sure. Um, <laughs> I mean, the amount of work that has been done. When I was there, my friends and I um, organized the first round dance that the campus put on. It was a lot of work. There was a lot of stuff going on. Um, 
but we wanted to do it predominantly as a step towards healing because many of us felt honestly uncomfortable on campus. Um, the amount of non-native students who didn't know about the tuition waiver, um, the amount of explicit racism towards native students because we got to go to school for free um, and the failure of any acknowledgement that this was a boarding school. And in fact, that native student services and the native student groups on campus had to meet in the only building remaining from the boarding school. Wow. Um, we used that opportunity to kind of open up space in the community at the time. And that felt for me very empowering. Um, and I know it did for my friends as well, because it's something that we still talk about on occasion. Um, but being able to see Native students empower themselves and say, I'm not, I don't want to, I don't want to move through this space like this anymore. And we are human beings and we deserve dignity and respect. And I think students at Morris in the last few years have really pushed to make that clear and say, we're here, tuition waiver, you know, because this was a boarding school, but that means we're also obligated to be responsible to this history and to the children who came through this space before we were even born. Um, this kind of continuity of responsibility is, I think, one of the ways that we see Native students today really empower themselves despite these legacies, um, or perhaps in spite of them is a better way to put that. Mm -hmm. I think also, I see this happening even here at a public university. This university is on Ho-Chunk land. Ho-Chunk Nation has made very clear they were forced into ceding this land following Black Hawk's War in 1832. Um, Ho-Chunk people are routinely erased from the landscape. And Native students here have often felt erased, marginalized, ignored by the university itself. Um, but the amount of determination I see in my students who are actively fighting to make sure that Indigenous peoples on this campus are seen and listened to and understood, even when they put things in the bluntest terms possible, which shouldn't be easy to misunderstand, but sometimes apparently is, um, they really highlight how it looks if Native people take education into their own hands um, and how Native people getting to decide how they move through educational spaces is important uh, because they can balance the violence of colonization and the turmoil of the contemporary world. And yet there is a certain level of hope and determination that is so incredibly important when thinking about legacies of boarding schools and how so many of us have moved through these spaces of classrooms in the years since boarding schools ended. Um, so, I mean, my general answer is always, it's native students doing things for themselves. 
Um, but I think they also offer a lot of us, and in particular, you know, Native scholars who talk about and teach about this, reminders that our roles in this are to support students who want to make these decisions for themselves, who want a say in what their education looks like and feels like, particularly because so many of us have family who never had the same amount of autonomy in deciding these things. Um, Native students are incredible and we can all learn a lot more from them if we give them the space to be a very significant part of any educational process about Native peoples. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Suarez. This has been very enlightening for me as a scholar to listen to your oral history today. And I hope the audience out there also enjoyed um, listening to your words. Um, this has been this has been great. So thank you so much for your time again. Um, it has been incredible. And I hope I hope you have a good rest of your day. Thank you. You too.